Democracy has been defined in many ways. Democracy is not something you demand from the state. It's critical to the health of a modern democracy. Democracy is a way of doing things. That reverence and respect for history and traditions should not stand in the way of progress. Order, order. The Prime Minister's answer must be heard. By working hard at it, the citizens of any community can achieve democracy. This is Democratic Audio. I'm Sean Kippen. What drama is doing generally when it, when it turns to contemporary issues is to exploit the fact that we don't really trust anybody. In this inaugural episode of the Democratic Audio podcast, we rummage through some box sets and revisit some of the old television favourites to bring you an expert's guide to political fiction. I mean, it's such a poor programme. It basically has this premise of the Machiavellian politician who's pulling all the strings. That, it's, that's so out of date. Four guests, ranging from academics to screenwriters, tell us about the merits and faults of some of the most popular political fiction from the past and present, like The Thick of It, Black Mirror, House of Cards and Borgen. How do these programmes shape our views of politics and politicians? And do they in any way resemble the real-world politics? Everybody in this room has bent the rules. We are dealing with the fictionalization of politics and also politicization of fiction. They want me to have sex with a pig live on television this afternoon. Come on, unleash hell! All coming up. Stay tuned. We are now going to progress to some steps which are a step, 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 which are a bit more difficult. Welcome to Democratic Audio, the podcast of the Democratic Audit blog. I'm Sean Kippen, Managing Editor. Our core aims are to improve democracy in the UK and to undertake and promote research into its health, strength and durability. You can visit our site at democraticaudit.com, where we have daily features and expert analysis on UK democracy. The Greek playwright Aristophanes wrote of the statesman Cleo, You are like the fishes for eels, thoroughly stirring up the slime so that their fishing is good. Since the dawn of party politics, we've had astute writers breaking down the walls that surround politicians through parody and dramatisation. Nowadays, political fiction tends to focus on the inner workings of government, casting an eye on how and why decisions are reached. Shows like The West Wing and The Thick of It have become so popular that they often shape the judgments that citizens make about their democracies. Four guests, Professor Steve Fielding, author of A State of Play, Distinguished Professor Ruth Wodak of Lancaster University, the author and former MP Chris Mullen, and finally the British playwright Anders Lustgarden join us as we dissect politics on screen. Richard Berry, co-editor of the blog, has more. All political um, fiction will distort. It's just why it distorts in the way that it does that's the interesting question. That's Professor Steve Fielding. In his book, A State of Play, he looks at fictional portrayals of politics in Britain and how these have shaped the way we think about our democracy. The level of inaccuracy gets, gets more exaggerated the closer you get to a mass audience. Uh, if you have a, an hour or an hour and a half on political drama, 
you aren't going to be able to say very much. Uh, you're basically caricaturing it, stereotyping it. So it's why do those caricatures, why do those stereotypes become prominent? So what Steve is saying is that political fiction is still first and foremost fiction. The need for interesting plots that attract wide viewerships is paramount over concerns of accuracy. Like the hectic of this everyday life, the constant running through corridors... Ruth Waldack, professor at Lancaster University, shares this view. She thinks that programmes like The West Wing do well to capture the backstage of politics. And these features are well represented in The West Wing. But the self-contained plots mislead viewers into thinking that politics is more simplistic than it really is. Uh, on the other hand, there are certain features, very important ones, which are very different and actually represent politics as something which is optimistic, which, uh, where there are good solutions to very big and complex problems. Actually, every episode, except once or twice, had a solution to a very big problem, and the president was actually the one who solved it. What do we got? Another continuing resolution? No. A budget. I think that might be quite dangerous to portray politics in that way because people might expect too much from politics. They might expect, actually, that that's the way how it goes. But Steve Fielding notes that despite the distortions, fiction does have a way of bringing out truths. Every drama will have a grain of truth. It, it will be, it, it's really a question of then what does the, the dramatist, what does the writer use with that little grain of truth. So the thick of it was clearly inspired um, by a view that politics was defined by spin, by the presentation of reality through the media and how that is then handled by the politicians and, and their spin doctors, obviously, you know, Malcolm Tucker in particular. He looked like he didn't know what he was f***ing talking about. Yeah. Now, I know he doesn't know what he's f***ing talking about, but he's got to appear as if he does, right? And that is your job and your job. And yours, 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 and yours. For all your respect of ministers, give them the lines. There was a reality there. It, it was just then the question of the extent to which the role of the spin doctor, obviously the, the horrendous, terrible Malcolm Tucker, sort of going through the ministry um, and basically making people cower, the extent to which that really depicted the actuality of Alistair Campbell, which, of course, he was essentially based on. Alistair Campbell was Tony Blair's head of communications and had a reputation in government for doing whatever it took to get the message across, even at the expense of upsetting a few of his colleagues. But not everyone agrees with this on-screen portrayal of the infamous spin doctor in the BBC comedy The Thick of It. Uh, it's a cynical fantasy, yes. Uh, it's very entertaining. Chris Mullin was the Labour MP for Sunderland South until 2010, and as a junior minister in the Blair government, he worked alongside Alistair Campbell. Now, Alistair was a very powerful figure in the government, that's undoubtedly true, much more powerful than most ministers. In fact, in many respects, Blair treated him as an equal. In, in my experience, anyway, and I only had a few dealings with him when he was in government, uh, he didn't ever forget the fact that we were elected and he wasn't. So 
Steve feels the question of whether there is any Malcolm in Alistair is beside the point. Alistair Campbell, of course, says it didn't reflect the reality, it was, it was something else. But there was a core to it that it did reflect what was actually going on. But also what it did do is it pandered to a certain popular view of what politics had become. Because Amano Inuchi didn't, didn't create the monster of the spin doctor. The spin doctor as, a, as an evil character was kind of there anyway and had been for a number of years. But, like I said, that's because it reflected certain changes in the real nature of politics. In the case of political spin doctors, art has imitated life, but in exaggerated form. Now the exaggeration has been fed back to the public by broadcasters. It helps confirm their mistrust of politics instead of challenging it. In America, just as in Britain, most people think negatively about politicians. Then dramas, which want to have an audience and want to be popular, they often mine the unpopularity of politicians by presenting them in a certain way. Um, So, of course, that means that audiences are pushed in a certain negative direction. At the very least, it reinforces their already negative feelings. What drama is doing generally when when it turns to contemporary issues is to exploit the fact that we don't really trust anybody to tell us anything that's near the truth anymore. One means by which Steve thinks political fiction preys on our negative attitudes is by showing politics as a world dominated by conspiracy. Because... The default position now is about conspiracies. These conspiracies usually succeed as well. That that actually is quite disabling. So you could argue that as politics is dramatised on the screen, it has a disabling effect. It demobilises people. A Very British Coup is one of the early examples of conspiracy fiction. I'm authorised to warn you. If you jeopardize the Western alliance, my government will be forced to regard that as a hostile act. Neutrality equals hostility? Isn't that a peculiar use of the language? The thesis behind a very British coup was that the real threat to uh, the British way of life didn't come from the Russians, which is what we've been led to believe for the preceding 30 years, but that it came from America. Chris Mullins' book, A Very British Coup, was published in 1982. It was adapted for television in the late 80s, and again in 2012, this time renamed Secret State. If the British people were ever so foolish as to elect a government uh, that, for example, threatened uh, America's use of their bases here, then it could expect to run into serious difficulty. The Americans want blood, but that, of course, is their style. They watch too many westerns in their formative years. It attempts to show the anatomy of power in Britain, focusing on the influence of the United States, the security services and press barons forces which contrived to keep the political left out of power. One of the things that gave a certain traction to a very British coup is that quite a lot of the things that were sort of speculated about or uh, um, actually came to pass, and some of them had already come to pass. But I, of course, like all fiction writers, hammed it up a bit. In the 1980s, the Labour Party aligned itself with the cause of nuclear disarmament, a policy which raised eyebrows in a Washington, D.C., preoccupied with the Cold War. Chris Mullin maintains, therefore, that a very British coup does have some basis in reality. There have been attempts by the establishment with a capital E to destabilise Labour governments over the years, starting with the the Zinoviev letter, uh, which helped to bring down the 1924 uh, Labour government, and that involved the Daily Mail and some part of the security services. Chris Mullin accepts that political fiction has at times exaggerated for effect, as in the BBC drama of the early 1990s, House of Cards. Well, fiction is exactly what it says. Fiction, sometimes 
it has a basis in reality. In fact, the best fiction does have a basis in reality, but uh, by definition, uh, it tends to overstate its case. In House of Cards, for example, you have the chief whip pushing a, a young woman journalist off the top of a roof. But I don't believe you. I don't believe I can trust you. That has never happened as far as I know. House of Cards is the story of a ruthless politician driven by his own ambition. The show has now been remade by Netflix, following the career of Congressman Frank Underwood, played by Kevin Spacey. As for me, I'm just a lowly House Majority Whip. I keep things moving in a Congress choked by pettiness and lassitude. My job is to clear the pipes and keep the sludge moving, but I won't have to be a plumber much longer. I've done my time. I've backed the right man. Give and take. Welcome to Washington. House of Cards, which is just terrible. I mean, it's such a poor programme. Anders Luskarten is a playwright and activist who deals with political themes in his work, often depicting individuals standing up to powerful forces, whether corporations or the states. He sees the remade House of Cards as simplistic and misleading. It basically has this premise of the Machiavellian politician who's pulling all the strings and is totally in control and knows everything that's going on and, you know... That it's, that's so out of date, the idea that, you know, the people in charge can control and regulate everything. House of Cards reveals the similarities between British and American political fiction because it is the same story told on both sides of the Atlantic. But clear differences emerge when we compare other shows in the two countries, especially in the way they seek to reflect and influence public opinion. There was a study of the audience for the West Wing and they go in thinking certain things about politics, and they come out, and the West Wing, of course, represents politics around the president, at least, in the White House, as a positive, a noble, a self-sacrificing kind of profession. They actually think better of politics. And not just Jed Bartlett, but they actually think, the audience comes out, thinking better of the real president, George Bush, and the former president, Bill Clinton. So it can change how people think, positively, but negatively too. Even to the most casual observer, the West Wing's approach to politics stands in obvious contrast to the typical British portrayal. You have this very interesting British, well, stereotypically called British humour, which really makes enormous fun about politicians. Uh, I mean, it's Monty Python, it's, um, it's uh, yes, Minister. The thick of it is a bit more explicit and not... It's very funny, but it's not that subtle. Looking more closely at the thick of it, Anders Luskarten wonders if it's more than just a bit of fun, if the extreme characterisations of politicians could actually be harmful in the long term. The fundamental problem, or the fundamental query I have with the thick of it, is it really does perpetuate the neoliberal myth that politicians can't do anything, and that politics is really just about spin and about presentation. Listen, um... I should get you over here sometime, yeah? I'd love that. And obviously, if you do think about running with this pill story, yeah. I will personally f***ing eviscerate you, right? Right. And I mean, I don't have your education, I don't know what that means, but I will start by ripping your cock off and I'll bust it from there, OK? Good. Thank you. Again, talk to you later. Cheers. Bye-bye now.
He's a nice guy. All they're trying to do is spin, and there's nothing they can really do. It's, it's curiously depoliticised. See this Ungumbaji? Let us pretend for a minute that that Ungumbaji is the problems that would be caused by a report that criticised you or Steve Fleming. Hmm? Watch. You see what I'm doing? I'm eating the onion bhaji. Why? Because I am the man that makes the bhaji go away. It doesn't really ever get to grips with people actually trying to do something, which you know, many politicians and people in public service believe they are and are trying in their own way to do, to a certain extent. As an activist, Nuskarten feels drama should seek to motivate audiences not depress them into inaction. What I think writers or anybody should be aware of is there is no such thing as neutrality. So when you posit a world in which nothing can be done, you are essentially advocating for nothing to be done. Because ultimately you're not going to make people do anything just intellectually. You have to make them feel like there is something that they can do. Ruth Waldack thinks that people will be more likely to participate in the democratic process they have a more realistic understanding of how it works. There is a need for more information about the backstage of politics because I think then people uh, would see or have uh, more knowledge about how participation happens, what actually happens with their votes. Uh, More town hall meetings of a kind where it's not just staged, but you, you know, where, where you have an impression that what you actually argue for gets somewhere. On the other hand, Steve Fielding thinks that as far as mobilisation goes, television might not be the right medium. People watch television and they see it as a form of entertainment. I, th- I, I don't think that there is much scope for, um, on a habitual basis, for people to watch something and then say, I'm going to change that maybe their views are subtly changed and i think there's there's real as i've said there's lots of evidence that views are are changed but usually it's to confirm what they already think What about when political dramas don't criticise the politician, but instead criticise the audience? Charlie Brooker's dystopian series for Channel 4, Black Mirror, often puts both the British public and the media under the microscope. In many ways, blaming us for creating the political culture we complain about. The episode with the pig is is by far my most favourite episode. That use of the, the society of the spectacle and the way in which, to a certain extent power has been transferred from the control of a political elite to the control of whoever controls the narrative and the visual representation of things. There is only one demand, and it is a simple one. At 4pm this afternoon, Prime Minister Michael Callow must appear on live British television on all networks, terrestrial and satellite, and, and have full unsympathetic sexual intercourse with a pig. Steve Fielding thinks this episode portrays the politician as being trapped. Trapped by a, basically an ignorant public who are looking to the media for spectacle and for entertainment. 
and don't want to take things at all seriously. And so they actually um, are kind of undermining the position of, of the politician. The video ends with a series of technical specifications for the broadcast. Why are you doing this? <sighs> this is a joke, right? <sighs> ha ha, Mike, ho ho. It's real. She's a pig. Sex with a pig. They want me to have sex with a pig. Live on television this afternoon. And I think what that's doing, what, what Charlie Brook is doing, is just basically emphasising the point that the media has become a force in its own right and panders, in, at least as, as, as he depicts it, to our own stupidity. And that the politicians, who are, you know, they're not, they're not depicted as, as being um, saints, they're just ordinary human beings. Some are, are well-inclined and some are not. But they're trapped within this kind of distorted mirror about what the people want. They, they kind of want the politician to be shown to be stupid and you know, to be forced to screw the pig. And actually what that is doing is it's, it's being sympathetic to the dilemma of the politician and, and castigating the public. What that is doing is very unusual because it's very, very rare for dramas on television, at least, to turn around and say, look, the politics that you don't like, it's your fault. This same point is made by Malcolm Tucker himself in the final episode of The Thick of It. I am obliged to remind you, Mr Tucker, that you are under oath, and if you lie to this inquiry, it may result in a criminal prosecution. Sorry, please don't insult my intelligence by acting as if you're all so naive that you don't know how this all works. Everybody in this room has bent the rules get in here because you don't get in this room without bending the rules you don't get to where you are without bending the rules that's the way it is you don't like it well you don't like yourself you don't like your species and you know what neither do i but how dare you come and lay this at my door how dare you blame me for this i am you and you are me Malcolm Tucker, the, the great big sweary colossus, most of the time he's running around trying to stop journalists reporting things which may or may not be true. If this gets into the press, I would know that it came from you. Clever. <laughs> and I would rain down upon you so hard that you'd have to be reassembled by fucking air crash investigators. Percentages, international comparison, information. Email them fucking words of information and tell them they better get their heads around it before they put pen to paper or they'll be up their asses like a fucking biafran ferret, right? Come on, unleash hell! He is basically trying to deal with the power of the media. He may be swearing at the ministers, but he's only swearing at the ministers because he's basically trying to put out a fire that the media is exploiting. And so he is kind of relatively powerless in, in, this, in that great big story. But it's interesting that most people, when they watch it, they see what they want to watch. They see the all-powerful spin doctor. What about political fiction outside the UK and the US? Danish political drama Borgen has followed the success of other Scandinavian shows in gaining international acclaim. 
One appeal of bargain is the way it focuses on the difficult choices politicians have to make with no obvious right answers. It's a more mature form of political fiction. We have topics which continue, so they're not solved in every episode. We have a much more complex private issues of politicians, so it's not only the backstage of politics, it's also the backstage of the politicians, so it's kind of more layers. Steve Fielding thinks Bargain shows just how differently the Danish view politics compared to the British public. The Danes trust themselves and their own politicians far more than anybody else does. So in a way, it's not really surprising that Borgen um, presents politics in that way. But that's because of the nature of Danish society um, or because of the Danish political system, which promotes, it almost makes coalitions compulsory. So it promotes agreement and consensus rather than the British system. Borgen is also distinctive for its female lead, a choice that Ruth Waldack hopes will inspire other political dramas. The move to portray women in power might be influential in, in a different way just to see that women can A, make it to the top and B, actually be in charge of uh, political situations or a political role. So again, in that way, you might have models um, which are new because charismatic males are not new, but charismatic females might be quite new. So in that way, they might have a different function. For Steve, the depiction of a woman as Prime Minister is a simple way to break away from a conspiracy-driven, male-dominated world of politics. Still, the stereotype is, politics is a conspiracy, it's run by men, and it is more gendered now in a much more explicit way. And, you know, these, these silly, pompous, comic, corrupt, self-interested, fat, middle-aged men are running it. So in... It's no surprise that women come along and they're depicted in these more refreshing terms. As soon as you get more women in, in the system, and it is more, it's more 50-50, I strongly suspect that, that that idea of women will bring a change will probably disappear. But we're a long way from that happening yet, so I'll be interested to see when it does. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to the inaugural podcast of Democratic Audio. To find a full list of the audio used on this episode, or for more commentary on UK democracy, visit our website www.democraticaudit.com. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley, and thanks also to Richard Berry, co-editor on the blog, for the narration. I'm Sean Kippen. Thanks for listening.